also, when I was an undergrad at Wake Forest, very tough school academically. So I was burning the candle at both ends. I worked as an RA, as a physiology tutor, or as a gross anatomy tutor, but I had a jaw surgery which I now know to have been unnecessary. But when you're 20, 21, and they tell you, hey, if you don't have this surgery, you're not gonna have any teeth left by the time you're 30 years old. So I had the surgery done during my winter break of my senior year in undergrad. And it was an eight, just over an eight hour surgery. They broke both my maxilla upper jaw and mandible lower jaw, added some screws, but uh, long story short, it all could have been done with an oral appliance. But that surgery knocked me on my butt. When I began college, I started working out and I was pretty consistent five, sometimes six days a week. And I went from 129 pounds to 186 pounds in a year. Not only that, my cognition, like my memory went from being amazing. Like one thing people always complimented me on was my memory. And that went away, which, you know, it's not typical. And then I had all these other issues that went from subclinical where it may show up once or twice a year, once every four months, something like that to being present constantly. And so that was sort of a wake-up call for me that, okay, I knew I wasn't making this up in my head. You don't go from being a high performer academically, athletically, to just saying, oh, I'm gonna fabricate an illness in my head. So when they said, oh, it, it's psychosomatic, I'm like, no, it's not psychosomatic. And so that was a huge wake-up call for me. And that got me interested in, you know, alt quote-unquote alternative healing. Welcome to the Nathan Crane Podcast. Nathan is a certified holistic cancer coach, 20-time award-winning documentary filmmaker, competitive CrossFit athlete, and best-selling author of Becoming Cancer-Free. With nearly two decades in independent natural health research and education, Nathan shares his top solutions for preventing and overcoming disease while optimizing health and improving human performance. Each week, Nathan brings on highly renowned experts to share natural and holistic health science, strategies, and breakthroughs for living your healthiest, happiest, and most fulfilling life. And now, here's Nathan Crane. Hey, welcome back to the podcast. Before we get started, I want to give you a free gift that I have spent over a decade researching thousands of hours of peer-reviewed studies and interviewing hundreds of world-leading functional medical doctors and cancer conquerors that lays out a blueprint for helping your mind and body become a cancer-fighting fortress for natural cancer prevention and healing. And that's my Amazon number one best-selling book, Becoming Cancer-Free. The physical copy sells for like 10 bucks on Amazon, which you know you can go get that if you want, but I'm happy to give you the ebook absolutely free. Just head over to Becoming cancerfree.com and you can download that ebook instantly. Again, that's becomingcancerfree.com and it's yours as a gift for me to you for tuning into this podcast. All right, let's get to the show. Today we are joined by Dr. Tim Jackson. Dr. Jackson received his undergraduate degree in health science and chemistry from Wake Forest University in 2003. He completed his doctorate in physical therapy uh, from the Medical University of South Carolina in 2009 and he specializes in nutritional biochemistry, digestive health, and its systemic effects, as well as functional endocrinology. He interviewed me on his podcast recently all about cancer and the science behind cancer and what you can do to empower your 
body to fight against cancer. That is the Boss Body Podcast. Go check out that episode and go subscribe to his podcast. It's a good one. Tim, hey, man. Um, awesome to uh, have you here on the podcast, dude. I'm excited about uh, talking with you here. Yeah, thanks, Nathan. I really appreciate being here, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing. I've followed you for several years now, and uh, you're doing great work and putting out content like a machine. Thanks, dude. I appreciate it. Uh, we need it, right? We need good uh, science-backed research and education about health and about empowering ourselves to fight against disease, avoid disease, and really live our best lives, I think, our, our, achieve our peak potential, you know, optimize our human performance um, with, like I said, science-backed information that is not just theoretical, but actually applied in everyday life. And that's what I do. I know that's what you do as well. And so, you know, the more we can do of it, I think the more people we can help and um, sift through a lot of the confusing information out there um but dude i'm excited to have you on the podcast because i want to learn more about your life and what you've gone through and then also i mean you work with athletes i want to get into that helping athletes optimize their performance i know you you uh help people with uh, hormones and optimizing their hormones i know uh you also have your own journey your own kind of health healing journey uh with lyme disease i want to talk about that so yeah, if you don't mind, let's start there. Um, sure. I, I was reading about your story that you, you know, were having different health issues. I think going through college, and then find, and then eventually you were diagnosed with Lyme. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when I was an undergrad at Wake Forest, you know, very tough school academically. So I was burning the candle at both ends. I worked as an RA, as a physiology tutor, or as a gross anatomy tutor. Um, was involved in a lot of extracurriculars on top of, you know, my full course load. And typically you have two science labs per semester, which takes up quite a bit of time. Um, but I had a jaw surgery, which I now know to have been unnecessary. But when you're 20, 21, and they tell you, hey, if you don't have this surgery, you're not going to have any teeth left by the time you're 30 years old. You know, you get pretty scared. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, let's definitely schedule the surgery. So I had the surgery done during my winter break of my senior year in undergrad. And it was an eight, just over an eight hour surgery. They broke both my maxilla upper jaw and mandible lower jaw, added some screws. But uh, long story short, it all could have been done with an oral appliance, Jeez. right? You know, small fraction of the cost, none of the invasiveness. And one thing uh, I'll toss in there is that people don't realize is when you put a foreign material into the body, if your immune system responds to that, it's going to create a chronic fight or flight state. And so we have tests that used to be one called the Clifford Dental Materials Test. It's no longer available. Now I think oral DNA um, might offer a good test for dental materials, but basically you don't want to put a material in that's going to cause your immune system to constantly be activated because then you end up with sort of immune cell exhaustion. But that surgery knocked me on my butt. Um, when I began college, I started working out and I was pretty consistent, you know, five, sometimes six days a week. And I went from 129 pounds to 186 pounds in a year. Um, now, some of that was pizza and chocolate milk, but most of it was 
protein and healthy food and working out. Um, but I went from basically leg pressing 500 pounds to barely being able to walk. And as you, you know, so, so you get, so just so I'm clear at 126 yep. pounds body weight, you say 126, 129, 129. And how tall are you or how tall were you? Five, five. Okay. So 129, five, five. And, and you were leg pressing 500 pounds at 129. Oh no. It was, so I was leg pressing when I was closer to 170. Okay. So, so you'd already gotten stronger. You added some body weight. You yeah. were, that's still very impressive. You know, that's impressive. Leg pressing 500 at 170. Gotcha. And then, but anyway, so you had already gained and then all of a sudden right. that started just deteriorating. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by Econugenics, the makers of Pectisol modified citrus pectin. Pectisol is clinically proven and backed by over 80 studies, six patents, and 30 plus years of clinical success. We're all familiar with inflammation and chronic diseases like cancer, but have you ever wondered where these health issues actually come from? You need to read more about an inflammatory protein called Galactin-3. It's been called by thousands of practitioners and research papers one of the root causes of nearly every chronic illness. Pectisol modified citrus pectin is the most researched Galactin-3 blocker on the market. It's been recommended by thousands of doctors for over 30 years to support oncology, immune health, and gentle detoxification. I personally use Pectisol, and I highly recommend it. Start your journey toward a healthier you with Pectisol Modified Citrus Pectin, and Econugenics is offering our listeners 15% off at econugenics.link forward slash ncrane15. You'll be able to use NCRANE15 as a discount code to get 15% off your order. Again, that's econugenics.link forward slash NCRANE15. Have you heard of PEMF therapy for cancer? Well, this podcast is brought to you by Dr. Pollock, and he wants to share with you the groundbreaking research of pulsed electromagnetic field therapy in the treatment of cancer. Studies show PEMF therapy can help control the cancer process and give safe, non-toxic, and non-invasive symptom management. PMF therapy may enhance other cancer support and treatments, lower inflammation, and promote tissue healing. Studies show it's possible to improve your general well-being and recuperate from surgery, radiation, and chemo better and more quickly. Embrace a comprehensive approach to cancer treatment with PMF therapy, a vital tool on your path to prevention, treatment, and recovery. For caring and professional guidance and recommendations from Dr. Pollock, go to drpollock.com forward slash intro to cancer that's d-r-p-a-w-l-u-k.com forward slash intro to cancer hey so if you've been following me for any time now you know that i often talk about helin 951 the nitrogen fermented organic soy drink i first learned about it at an integrative cancer event years ago and i've been taking this myself for a long time. It's so potent and it has a strong flavor. So I add their organic mint powder to it and it's easy to take any time of day. I usually take it in the mornings. You know, I'm constantly looking into natural health products and the ones that catch my eye are the ones with years of proven results and the science and research to back them up. I love that Helin 951 checks all of these boxes. Made from a unique 100% organic soybean grown in the high mountains of Mongolia, Helin 951 has some incredible health properties. Just a few of the benefits are more energy, better sleep, detox, longevity, better immune function, and some fantastic anti-cancer compounds. 
The folks over at Helan have made a page just for our followers to learn more. You can head over to Helan951.com forward slash crane. That's H-A-E-L-A-N 951.com forward slash crane. They have special discounted packages there for you to get you started. And if you use the promo code crane, C-R-A-N-E, at checkout, they will also give you free shipping. So head over and grab this special offer for yourself and use the free shipping promo code CRANE or just give them a call if that's easier for you. They are so easy to work with and have over 32 years in the industry. Again, that's helan951.com forward slash CRANE. You know, with the cold and flu season here, it's critically important that we enhance and strengthen our immune systems. Yes, would you agree? The problem is, though, that there's so much confusion out there when it comes to what actually works for our bodies and for our health. Well, I'll tell you what I used. I use Maison Beljansky's wellness products. Maison Beljansky's products are backed by science to not only help empower the immune system, but can support detoxification and contribute to our overall health. Coming from Europe, the all-natural Beljansky formulas are now available in the United States and are recommended by top doctors everywhere. A lot of the colleagues I work with, functional medicine practitioners that work with patients with all kinds of diseases, are recommending Maison Beljansky's products to their very own patients. As a special sponsor of this podcast, Maison Beljansky has included a very special discount offer for all of my listeners. You can get 15% off your first order using the promo code Nathan, and you'll always enjoy free shipping when you order four products or more. You can grab your wellness products today at MaisonBeljansky.com. That's M-A-I-S-O-N-B-E-L-J-A-N-S-K-I, MaisonBeljansky.com, and use code Nathan for 15% off. Exactly. And so, you know, not only that, my cognition, like my memory went from being amazing. Like one thing people always complimented me on was my memory. Um, and that, you know, went away, which, you know, it's not typical. And then it, I had all these other issues that went from subclinical where it may show up once or twice a year, once every four months, something like that, to being present constantly. And so that was sort of a wake up call for me that, okay, you know, I knew I wasn't making this up in my head. You don't go from being a high performer academically, athletically to just saying, oh, I'm going to fabricate, you know, an illness in my head. Um, so, you know, when they said, oh, it, it's psychosomatic, I'm like, no, it's not psychosomatic. And so that was a huge wake up call for me. And that got me interested in, you know, all quote unquote alternative healing. But being in the Southeastern United States, and this was back, I graduated undergrad in 2003. So functional medicine wasn't nearly what it is today. Um, but I was able to eventually about two years later, uh, find an EMT who didn't do surgery anymore. And he focused on heavy metal toxicity and candida. And we know there's a lot more to health than that, but hey, when that's all you have, it's a lot better than the alternative. Those are two, so, two of the big ones, by the way. I, I have an entire presentation I'm finishing up, uh, which covers the nine major toxins we're exposed to. We have to get out of our body 
every day if we want to avoid diseases like cancer and you know metabolic dysfunction. But two of the, those two are really, really big ones, actually. If you just focus on those two, uh, you, yeah. you can see some good results. Yeah, and I had someone, I've had several people say, well, don't you think it's kind of odd that you're saying like all these people have candida? I said, I just go where the evidence takes me. Like, it's not odd that I'm saying it. It's kind of like saying it's odd that you say that there's a lot of obesity. Well, I mean, that's because there is, right? And, you know, if you have mercury, that's going to drag the immune system down. So then candida grows. And by the way, I'll save the listeners and viewers about $30,000. Don't treat candida until you've treated the mercury or at least treat them simultaneously. Um because I got IV therapy and this might be TMI, but I excreted what looked to be a, like a jellyfish, essentially. Because I well, I was born um, via C-section. I wasn't breastfed. And then I was on a ton of antibiotics throughout childhood. And even in undergrad, I would go in for an ear infection. And I saw the head of the ENT department. And this is a top 25 medical school. He was putting me on fluoroquinolones, Leviquin. Um, things like that for a middle ear infection. And all I really needed was to heal my gut lining to prevent, you know, mucoid plaque building up um, and the fluid in the middle of my ear. Um, but all those antibiotics created massive yeast overgrowth. And that was part of what caused the brain fog. Now, I still was able to graduate with a good GPA and honors and everything, but I had to work harder than I would have had I gotten the mercury and candida out. And so I was able, that got me well enough to start my doctorate program. And, you know, I'm very type A, very driven, like many people in this field. And so, you know, it can be a blessing and a curse. And, you know, I noticed when I overworked that some of my symptoms would resurface. So I started, you know, gradually reading journals and things like the Townsend letter on the internet. I mean, obviously it was there, but not to the extent that it is today where you can practically find anything. Um, and so as I learned more, I would apply it to myself. Uh, and so I started getting things, just experimenting with things like IV vitamin C, glutathione pushes. Um, I realized I was estrogen dominant. And man, that was a huge one. I, you know, a lot of guys, well, I mean, it applies to males and females, but guys especially, we call estrogen dominance the career killer because it just tanks your motivation, your zest for life. And uh, for guys out there that think, okay, you just need to keep raising your testosterone higher and higher and higher. Well, you can do that. But if it's, if you're inflamed and it's hyper converting into estrogen, it's going to cause you to functionally feel as if you had low testosterone. So you don't need to keep jacking up the testosterone. You need to look at the other variables like estradiol, sex hormone binding globulin. And I, so I just kept layering in these pieces over the years. And um, I met a guy locally, or he was local at the time, who was both a medical doctor and a chiropractor. And he said, you know, there's a lot of people doing the orthopedic stuff. There's almost no one doing functional medicine. He's like, you're way too smart just to do the ortho part. He's like, because I was teaching him stuff because I had stopped. I mean, when you're faced with your own mortality, it's amazing how fast you can learn, right? And so he's like, yeah, you, you got to do the functional medicine stuff. And so I did orthopedics for the first almost two years out of school. And then I transitioned fully over into functional medicine. 
And during that time, a colleague had given me Dr. Richie Shoemaker's book, Mold Warriors. So I started learning about mold and being in the southeastern United States. I mean, it can happen anywhere, right? But we're at increased risk because of the humidity and the way construction is done, things of that nature. And, you know, you and I talked about this when I interviewed you, but mycotoxins, you know, they're so prevalent in the environment. And uh, I had to take my little pug to the vet yesterday. I was talking with the technician and she said, oh, you mean black mold? And I said, that's stachybotrys and it's definitely dangerous, but it's kind of a blessing if you have that, because at least you see it and you say, oh, this is serious. I'm going to take some action and, you know, get out of there, have it remediated. But things like aspergillus, you can't see, you may be able to smell, um, but most species you can't see or smell. And, you know, it's behind the walls, things of that nature. So uh, I, at the time, this was like 2009, 2010, I did a stool test. It was the GI effects from Metametrics, now Genova, but it showed a plus three on the yeast, but there was an asterisk underneath it and it said, uh, plus three or higher may indicate mold toxicity. And I, so that got, put me down in that rabbit hole. And I gradually started learning about the Patricia Kane protocol and rehabbing cell membranes, how to get these lipophilic toxins out of the cell and then through the bile and excrete them through the stool. And so all of that, I kept incorporating more and more techniques and methods you know, I promised myself early on that I wasn't going to be someone who said everything is mold or everything is gut health or everything is neurotransmitters or everything is micronutrient deficiencies. I mean, it's all important. And depending on the person, some of it will play more of an important role than others. Um, but I don't think we could exclude, at least in a healthy manner, any of those variables. And so I keep studying, um, you know, I've done a lot of different certifications over the years, different functional medicine techniques and ideologies. And I just continue to learn. I tell my patients and clients the answer I give you today probably won't be the same if you ask me the same question in six months, because I'm, you know, reading at least an hour a day. I've been doing that for 14, 15 years. So you were actually diagnosed with Lyme when? Like what year or what? Yes. Yeah, so what happened was in 2011. Yeah, it was in 2011. And I was working with a nurse practitioner and there was a lab called Pharmacin Labs that came around. It's no longer in existence, but they had a test called the immune tolerance test. And I did it because it checked the levels of inflammatory cytokines. And I was getting ready to go in the room and um, have a consultation with a patient and one of the front office members grabbed me. She's like, you might want to look at this. And it said positive for both past and current infection. So, and I, at that time I was having a significant joint pain, but I was also lifting weights really heavy. So I talked it up to that, but I'm like, oh, okay. This reframes a lot of that. Um, and so I had access to IV vitamin C high doses. I did that. And then about three, four months later, I started um, with a new clinic and we had hard chamber hyperbaric units. So I did about over the course of six or seven months, about 80, 75, 80 dives uh, around 2.8 atmospheres. And so that was really helpful. Um, and I was doing things all along, you know, working on my gut health, probiotics, killing the gut lining, um, binders for mycotoxins, 
Um, and one thing that wasn't nearly where it is today back then was balancing the autonomic nervous system. And that was a huge component for me that I didn't get into until, you know, 2014, 2015. And now we got devices and gadgets that can, you know, help increase parasympathetic tone, but um, you can't heal in a sympathetic dominant state. And so all of our recovery, regeneration and healing takes place in the more parasympathetic dominant state. So one of the outrageous theories I have, and, and this could just be because I'm not informed enough about Lyme. And so I want to hear your thoughts on this is that people get diagnosed with Lyme very often based on symptoms and not actually being able to detect Lyme. And they just treat it as, you know, it's like they want to give a patient a diagnosis so that they can actually do something about it, right? Instead of saying, oh, I don't know what it is. There's nothing we can do. Um, they want to be able to prescribe. They want to be able to treat. They want to be able to do their jobs and help people. Um, same with functional medicine practitioners. They want to be able to, you know, give diet and lifestyle and supplements and different things that they can do. Um, but I'm... I'm not totally convinced yet, and maybe you can convince me <laughs> that Lyme is actually something that you can definitively test for. Uh, am I wrong in thinking that? Well, so the traditional test is the Western block test. And if I remember correctly, false negatives on that test are around 30 to 33%. So pretty high. False now, negative. If, so that means that um, it tells you you don't have it when you when, may actually have when it. you may have it. Exactly. Yeah. And so um, the, if you provoke the Lyme with either prescription antibiotics, usually doxycycline or herbs like Cemento and Vanderol, you do that for about two weeks and then you do the same test, same Western blot. Uh, it's going to be a much more accurate test. Now, interestingly enough, in most Asian countries, you only need two bands to be considered positive for Lyme. Here, you need five. Now, to further complicate the matter, there's cross-reactivity between Epstein-Barr virus and Lyme. So when you see band P41 that it's showing up, it may not be Lyme. It could be, but it could also be Epstein-Barr. And so that's where the picture gets murky because number one, the uh, tests aren't very accurate, even like the expensive functional medicine labs. A lot of times and I've had patients and clients who have tested literally seven or eight times. And it's not until the eighth or ninth time that they test positive. And by that time they've spent like seven or eight grand. And so um, it's one of those things where you can also look at indirect markers like CD57 cluster designation 57. So it's a type of um, protein on the outer membrane of the cell. And uh, it's a type of white blood cell. Um, so CD57, you want it to be in general 200 or higher. And a lot of people with Lyme are going to have it 50 or below. Now, it's not one of those things where as you start to feel a little bit better, it'll start to trend up. It's usually going to kind of stay where it is, and then you'll see a huge bump all of a sudden. Why that is, I'm not sure. I don't know that anyone knows for sure. Um, but you're right. There are 
definitely just like with any test, whether it's traditional medicine or functional medicine, you know, there's inaccuracies. Um, like let's take a, a metabolic panel where you looked at magnesium. That's only 1% of the magnesium in your body. So you need to look at RBC magnesium or do a test like an oligo scan to check tissue mineral status. So with Lyme, there's usually, not always, but usually concomitant mold toxicity. And that's derailing the immune system. So you may have had a situation where your immune system was keeping the Lyme at bay. It wasn't really uh, impacting you overtly. And then you're exposed or accumulate some mycotoxins over the years, and that lowers immune function. And then these pathogens start to rear their ugly heads. Got it. So, and I just pulled this up from the CDC. Basically, the CDC defines Lyme disease as caused by the bacterium Borrelia burgdorferi. So, and, and obviously the, the thing that we're told, and again, I don't know if this is actually true. <laughs> it's very hard for me to believe, you know, our governmental health agencies now because, you know, we catch them in lies all the time and fudging science and, you know, but, but they say it's primarily from ticks who have been affected and you get bit by a tick and then that's how the bacteria passes to you. And if that bacteria takes over and you end up with all these symptoms, then then you can be diagnosed with Lyme disease, right? Um, again, I, that may be totally true, but you know what I see from these governmental health agencies just makes me really question that. And I haven't researched it enough personally to, to have a definitive answer because I can go look up what a lot of these organizations say about cancer. And I have researched that literally right. over 10,000 hours in the last 10 plus years and I can tell you a lot of things they say are not true <laughs> and are not accurate um, either because they don't know or they are, you know, don't want people to know um, both exactly. of those, both of those are plausible, but yeah. So, but you, you know, you had this diagnosis and then you, uh, you, were you able to completely heal yourself of it? If you were to take those tests again, does it show up negative now? Yeah, I haven't tested again in several years. But, you know, functionally, I'm stronger or at least as strong as I was when I was 21. Um, you know, I, I keep learning and adding more tools to my tool belt. Um, but, you know, to list all the things that I did, I did UVLRX, which is basically your blood goes underneath the light and pathogens absorb photons five times greater than our human cells. And so it's very good at eradicating pathogens. Um, I did uh, EBU, which is extracorporeal blood ozonation and oxygenation. So they add ozone and then it goes through the UV filter and then they add a little oxygen as well. Um, and, and that was very effective. It, it's similar to 10 past ozone, but EBU typically lasts longer, like eight to 10 weeks at least. Um, so I did those therapies um, and then the lymphatic system. There was a lady here locally who had a, a team called a Lymph Star Pro, and she had taken the course to get certified. And I would go to her home and, and we were trading services. Um, but getting the lymphatic system moving, you know, now I have a vibration plate I use almost every day. Um, but the lymphatic system is so huge and it's getting more attention, um, rightfully so. I don't think enough people pay attention to it, especially so. One of the practice that I mentioned where we had the hyperbaric chambers, 
it's shown, uh, or at least the building is shown in the movie Under Our Skin, which is about Lyme disease. And that's a $3 million building um, built by Dr. Jim Sick, who's a well-known Lyme uh, literate MD, who's now in Washington, DC. But when you killing off all these pathogens, like he would have patients on IV antibiotics and things like that. A lot of times they get worse, number one, because, you know, Herxheimer reactions, the drainage pathways are closed, the lymphatic system's not moving, and you, you have massive inflammation, and the more inflamed you are, the less capable you are of detoxification. So I think um, with Lyme, you know, you have to, to look at all the variables, like body temperature is a huge one, right? Um, so the two ways to change the function of a protein are to change the pH or change the temperature. And so um, that's one reason why infrared saunas work. Yes, they help us detoxify. They induce heat shock proteins. They're also increasing our basal metabolic rate to an extent. And that's basically playing whack-a-mole with the pathogens. And so if you look at clinics like St. George's Clinic in um, Europe, you know, they have, they put you under partial anesthesia and they'll do the hyperthermia treatments where they take your temperature up to around 106 degrees Fahrenheit um, and it kills off pathogens. And so the saunas, you can think of that as like a minor, you know, version of the overt hypothermia treatments. Um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I got rid of the mycotoxins. That was a huge part. Um, I fixed my sleep apnea, which was a huge part. Um, and by the way, the sleep apnea, I got tested by... Uh, Johns Hopkins trained ENT. He told me I didn't have any sleep apnea. And I said, well, I'm waking up during the middle of the night choking. And it wasn't from being overweight. I mean, I was in good shape, but just, you know, structurally. And that's another thing I, I want to point out is that a lot of people are under the assumption that you have to be overweight or even obese to have sleep apnea. But I got the book right here. It's called Six Foot Tiger on a Three Foot Cage. And it's by Dr. Felix Lau, but it's basically about sleep disordered breathing. And I bring that up because, you know, I always try to look at things when I'm working with patients, what can I do to make everything else work better? I, will, I can do all the functional medicine treatments in the world. And if you have sleep apnea and it's not treated, it will have marginal improvements at best, just because every tissue requires oxygen, right? Now, if you go to a traditional doctor's office or you're hospitalized and your O2 stats are 94, 95, they're going to say, that's good. But that's not good. You want it to be 98 to 99, right? I mean, you may, it may be okay according to the allopathic textbooks, but you're going to have symptoms and you certainly won't be able to reach optimal health when you're not fully oxygenating your body. More importantly, your sleeping is getting interrupted. So you lose all your anabolic potential or most of it. And so you're not able to recover from workouts. You don't have the energy to work out. And then there's some controversy as to whether people with sleep apnea should receive testosterone replacement if they need it, because technically it can worsen sleep apnea. But the reality is you, you, if you need it, you need it. And you just have to treat the sleep apnea concomitantly. And so all those things that, that I did that I mentioned uh, contributed some more than others, but that's the thing um, that's difficult about treating Lyme and other stealth pathogens is a lot of times you don't know if something's going to work until you try it because you could have a hundred people that say, yeah, this is amazing, but it may or may not work for you. Yeah, hundred percent.
You know, I I pulled up a article from the um, Cedar Sinai Medical Center, which is a leading edge, you know, technology and uh, treatment center, medical center, and that, how they talk about Lyme disease. And you know, they say sometimes diagnosing Lyme disease can be hard. The symptoms may seem like other health problems. It may also not be known if the person was exposed to ticks. They say diagnosis is usually based on symptoms particularly the typical rash along with a history of a known or possible tick bite. And that's, that's the problem in my mind is like, like we saw with COVID, right? Where people were being diagnosed with a disease without even doing really in-depth testing, just based on symptoms. And the symptoms you have associated with Lyme can be very similar to virus, viral infections, bacteria, other bacterial infections, mold, as you talked about, toxicity, mycotoxins, you know, candida infections. There's so many, you know, toxic, chemical toxic exposure. There's so many other things that could be happening that are leading to those symptoms. And so to base, base a diagnosis on, have you been around ticks lately? And what are your symptoms? <laughs> you know, it's like, and I don't want to take away from anybody who, really knows for a fact they have Lyme, they had in-depth testing and they've been treating it and they, like in your case, got better, right? Like not, not saying it's to take away. I'm saying for people to like be aware and educate yourself and realize, you know, if a doctor is just basing uh, diagnosis on symptoms, they may or may not be correct. And you may need to get multiple opinions and dig deeper and you know, look at other options for treatment as well. The The number one option that a conventional medical doctor is going to recommend for Lyme is um, antibiotics, right? The problem with antibiotics, as you know, and you mentioned as you were opening up, and I know from personal experience as well, and um, Dr. Robin uh, Chutkin talks a lot about, I'm reading um, her book, The Microbiome Solution right now, which is fantastic. It's like a great reminder of the importance of our, our our gut health but she goes really in depth into antibiotics in that book and how they completely destroy the good gut bacteria and how most of her patients with Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and all kinds of gut issues basically she noticed a trend and this is how what led her to you know researching gut health and the microbiome was that every single one of her patients had early antibiotics uh and lots of early antibiotics in their life um and i did too as a kid every time i'd get sick go to the doctor family doctor have antibiotics is on antibiotics for a week or two boom you know eight months later a year later same thing antibiotics 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 and then you know by the time i'm 18 19 incredible gut health problems right incredible gut yeah. problems terrible gut problems and they were persistent and it's you know, taken until this day almost to get things, you know, really under control and feeling good. Um, a lot of detoxing, a lot of cleansing, you know, whole food, plant-based diet, a lot of fermented foods, a lot of sauna, you know, uh, all the things that you mentioned as well, exercise, sleep, parasympathetic nervous system, uh, mold detoxifications, um, parasite cleanses, you know, you name it to really help get the gut under control. And the thing is, is if you have antibiotics, and they destroy the healthy bacteria as well as the bad ones. The problem is it can take years before your microflora get back into a healthy balance. And in that time, the um, 
the bacteria that we consider as bad, right? The ones that will come in and take over, they start to fill in those holes that were left. They start, they're opportunistic. They look for an opportunity to grow and they spread. It's fine that they're there inside our bodies as long as they're under control. But when they start to spread out of control, like candida, candida produces a toxin called candida lysin. Candida lysin is really the problem with candida, right? Which is, uh, causes an inflammatory response in the body and the chronic inflammatory response damages mitochondria, kills off healthy cells, um, and causes all kinds of metabolic dysfunction. So it's not even so much, you know, the pathogen itself that is technically a problem. It's the byproducts of that pathogen. It's the waste products of that pathogen. And it's also, you know, oftentimes what those pathogens, viruses, bacteria, fungus, yeast, etc., do when they start to move into different organs and areas, and even the brain of the body and expand and take over, And then you can end up with all these kinds of symptoms like brain fog and fatigue and gut health problems. And really all it was, was you took a bunch of antibiotics when you were younger, never got your gut health into check or into a good balance because you eat processed food and not enough fermented food. And then you think you can solve it with a simple probiotic 12 strain. We have thousands of strains of of bacteria in our gut. And how do we think that we could take a simple probiotic and it's going to solve everything? Right. They don't even the scientists haven't even figured out yet what all of the bacteria in our guts, what their functions are and which ones technically are good and which ones technically are bad. We only know a handful of what they do yet. And so, you know, I think a part of the problem is we think, oh, we know 12 good ones. So let's just load up on the 12 good ones. Yeah. But what if those grow out of control? You know, is it going to take you make your body out of whack? And so that's why. It is important that we take a really multi-pronged approach to to our health. Yeah, and to your point, um, so as I started to learn about gut health when I was in uh, medical school in my doctorate program, I started taking lactobacillus acidophilus, you know, and we didn't have summits back then, or, I mean, we had a few blogs, but nothing to the extent that we do today. I was popping them like candy, and I did this for probably three years. And then I started noticing like significant brain fog, just my energy wasn't there. So I did a stool test and my D-lactate, you know, which is produced by lactobacillus acidophilus, it was off the charts. So to your point, I had overgrown some of the quote unquote good bacteria. And, you know, the name of the game is diversity, diversity, diversity. And so even if you have a pathogenic bug, you don't have to necessarily administer antimicrobial herbs or antibiotics or antimicrobials, you there's something called niche exclusion, where by feeding the good bugs and repopulating the good bugs and adding resistant starch, butyrate, prebiotics, then you can crowd out the bad bugs without all these uh, side quote unquote side effects of killing off the other beneficial species. That's really the number one solution right there, right? Is give the food to the the healthy organisms so that they can populate and grow and do what they do we know that some of these bacteria that feed off of you know fiber for example different kinds of fiber well as we said as you just said starches um produce short chain fatty acids like butyrate which have incredible health functions in the body again this is the gut health stuff is really fascinating because it's like i think maybe we're one percent there of understanding it, right? And, and we already understand a lot, like there's already a lot of science published on it. There's a lot of really interesting stuff, but my guess is we probably understand 1% of actually 
what's going on. And the more that we understand, the more fascinating it is. So that is a danger of certain supplements and probiotics and stuff. Yeah, they can be helpful, right? You, it, let's say you, you did, you just had a round of antibiotics because you needed it. Um, it is, it may be helpful to take a high dose strain of, you know, 12 or 15 of the most well-researched probiotics for a month or two while you're, you know, to try and help repopulate some of those. Personally, I don't, I used to take probiotics every day, same thing. I don't take them anymore, you know, very, very rarely. And I try to feed my, I don't try, I absolutely focus on feeding my, um, the bacteria in my gut with the foods that they need. Um, some of those foods are, you know, fermented foods are, are the most well-researched and understood, right? Kimchi is a yes. fantastic one, you know, fermented cabbages and fermented uh, vegetables, you know, kimchi, mm -hmm. I believe originates from Korea. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, seaweeds, fermented seaweeds, tempeh, right, which is a fermented uh, soy product that originates from uh, Japan originally, I believe. You know, these have all been shown tempeh, uh, kimchi, sauerkraut, even pickles. You know, these things have all been shown to provide not only the, back, the healthy bacteria that grow on them, but then also the food the bacteria need to, to grow inside our bodies. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said is spot on. And, you know, with probiotics, a lot of times people think, okay, we're taking them, they're going into our GI tract, they're setting up shop and they're just, you know, living there. But sometimes that's the case. Other times it's more of an indirect effect where they're interacting with the dendritic cells and toll-like receptors to affect a systemic change. And so when we look at short chain fatty acids like butyrate, um, we know for every one signal the brain sends to the gut, the gut sends roughly eight signals back to the brain. And that's how things like butyrate can raise brain-derived neurotropic factor, which I kind of locally describe as miracle growth for your neurons. It's strengthening those synaptic connections. It's increasing the neuronal um, strength of the neuronal connections and pathways. Um, it also has potent systemic anti-inflammatory properties. So one thing people don't realize is, okay, if I have a fire in the gut, aka inflammation in the gut, there's going to be fire in the brain. So if you have gut issues, there's no way around it. At some point in time, you're going to develop brain issues. And we know now from research that diagnoses like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, they, most people have gut dysbiosis that precedes that diagnosis by up to two decades. Wow. So, I mean, really what you're saying in your case was a lot of what you found out to be the underlying cause of your health problems was um, uh, gut dysbiosis, right? And by treating a lot, you know, the mycotoxins and the candida and the other problems that stemmed from an unhealthy gut, likely due to the antibiotics, as you said, then a lot of your symptoms uh, improved. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. That and, you know, just overall working on uh, focusing on health versus just getting stronger. I mean, when you're 18, you're like, oh, I want to bench press, you know, 375 pounds. And that's my only goal. I don't care what it takes to get there. But if you pursue fitness at the expense of your health, 
bad things happen. And I know because I did it. Uh, but if you pursue health, the body composition will come. Um, and, and it's counterintuitive for a lot of people. You know, they think calories in, calories out, or do more cardio. Depending on your allostatic load, so the total stress on someone's body, that, that could end very badly. We know from research, when you look at the immune systems of marathon runners, their secretory IgA, which protects all of the entrances to our body, our mucous membranes, that their levels are incredibly low. And so we know that mild to moderate exercise strengthens the immune system, but excessive exercise will deplete the immune system. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where we get into the autonomic nervous system. We talk about sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? Which is, you know, if you stimulate sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight through high intensity in a short duration, the hormetic benefits from that are actually fantastic, right? Where you, you know, you might get some adrenaline going because you're doing a high intensity workout for 10 or 12 or 15 minutes, like CrossFit, for example. But then what happens is you're, your immune system and your autonomic nervous system actually adapts to that and learns to become more resilient and then releases different kinds of hormones that um, actually improve overall health. But you can push that too far for sure. I've experienced right. it as an, as a, you know, um, as an athlete who is trying to, you know, achieve uh, a level of being a professional athlete and, you know, we have to train five or six hours a day. And so I know what it's like to totally drain the nervous system and to totally, you know, walk away feeling completely depleted and wake up, you know, at, at the end of the night, dead, feeling dead and wake up next morning, do it all again, five, six hours a day, right? And too much of that, and then you become injury prone and other problems can happen. So there is definitely a challenge in wanting to pursue something, you know, let's talk about peak performance with your physical body, but also trying to balance your health for the long term and prevent injury and, you know, be healthy at the same time. Um, it, it, it's a challenge. It's a mental struggle for sure, because obviously I want to be healthy. I want to be, you know, live a long time and be a great grandfather for my, my grandchildren and hopefully even great grandchildren and be around and healthy for that. And I have short-term professional athlete goals that I'm striving towards and, and that require an intense amount of, you know, physical uh, commitment and dedication that definitely put a wear and tear on the body. So it's one of the reasons among my cancer research for the past decade that I'm like really, really focused on all of the recovery things, you know, the saunas, the ice baths, the, the power plate, the, the meditation, even though I started meditating like, 17 years ago, but, you know, the meditative practices, the Reiki, the Qigong, you know, getting eight to nine hours of sleep every night, like all those things, you know, the diet, the nutrition, um, to help my body recover. But I definitely have a tendency to push things a little too far to the point where like, I'll have pain, you know, it's like a few months ago, some pain popping up in the shoulder. And I'm just like, eh, it's just a little pain. It'll go away. And then I train through it and then the knee pops up some pain and the hip pops up some pain. I'm like, eh, it'll go away. You know, don't be a wuss. You know, that's like that back of the mind, the David Goggins talking in the back of your head. I mean, yeah. that's how, that's how I've been my whole life. So it's not, it's not like, uh, I'm just giving the David Goggins example because I think people can relate yeah. to that where that's how I've always pushed, you know, and oftentimes, unfortunately to the extreme. And now it's like, okay, now I had to back off fully because I just pushed through that too much and now it's so inflamed and it's chronic and it's tendinopathy 
And it's like, if I keep doing that, it's probably just going to tear something, right? It's just stupid at that point. And where I could have backed off for a week, let things heal, do PT, recover a week or two and be back at it. Now I'm having to take a month, two months, three months of really backing off, right? And so I'm still learning uh, how to listen yeah. to my body because it's, and at the same time, trying to balance that as an athlete who's trying to achieve higher peak potential, you know, doing everything I can to also keep my body healthy for the long term. Does that make sense? Yeah. And one thing I've always said, or at least for the past 18, 19 years, is that I will take a moderately trained athlete who's well recovered over an extremely well trained athlete who is under recovered. Mm. And so I think, you know, I understand what David Goggins is saying. Um, and there's a lot of truth to that. But then there's a lot of people who, like you and I, are the kind of people who are push it too far yeah. or, you know, push the limits too much. And so a lot of times people fall into one of two camps. Like you, you either need to stick your foot up their butt, get them going, or you need to, you know, put a leash on them and hold them back from themselves. <laughs> I definitely need a and, leash. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, you know, you can definitely overdo it and, you know, looking at hormonal status, I mean, and that's kind of my passion is merging fitness with functional medicine because it's all really on a spectrum, right? And if you look at the old timey bodybuilders, like way, way before Arnold, um, you know, the gyms were a place of health. Like they would have gymnastics rings, balance beams, kettlebells before kettlebells came onto the scene. Um, and, and it was all about, you know, being healthy, like Jack LaLanne, you know, lived until like 94, 95. And I mean, was doing one arm push-ups. I mean, crazy stuff. And so I think we need to uh, get back to more of that versus, you know, if I go to my gym, which I love, uh, but, you know, I'm under artificial blue light, you know, a lot of non-native EMF exposure. Um, half the people at my gym can't put their phone down for one set of an exercise. So there's, I mean, their dopamine receptors are just shot. And, you know, now you have um, these athletics companies making the little holes or slots for people's phones right near their genital area. I'm like, wow, that that's a really bad, unsafe idea. Uh, but, you know, I if I can work out outside, I usually will. Um, but I do like going to my gym, pushing and pulling the sled, doing step-ups, reverse hyper machine, things like that, um, deadlifting. So I think there's a time and place for it all. But, you know, some of the simplest things you can do are to get outside, get some photons, walk barefoot on the grass, get some electrons to decrease inflammation, decrease the viscosity of the blood. And all of that's so important. And a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't do functional medicine. It's too expensive. I'm like, how about free? Is that too expensive? Because, you know, the first three or four things I'm going to tell you are totally free unless you count time. I mean, you got to put some time into it. But, you know, you can read a book or whatever you want while you're getting morning sunlight. And so I think, you know, bodybuilders had it right back in the day. Like they were very adamant about going to bed by like 9 or 9.30, you know, to get that growth hormone spike. And, you know, they may or may not have known that that's when, you know, most liver detoxification processes occur. And so uh, I think it, it's also interwoven when people ask me to niche down. I'm like. 
I could brand myself as a brain health expert or a hormonal health expert, but I'm still going to say the same things. Like, you know, I can't, it's not like your heart beats and then it stops and then your neurons fire and then they stop and your kidneys filter waste. Like it just doesn't work that way. And so I mean, you have to have a point of entry into the system, but uh, you don't want to just ignore all the other systems. And that's how allopathic medicine has worked in a, in a few select cases it's great that we have people who are hyper-specialized, but you know, if you can't understand how a pathogen could negatively affect brain health, then you're studying for the wrong test. Um, and actually, I won't say the name of the clinic, but it's a very well-known brain health institute across the country. When I was in Atlanta, we had a patient who was going there and uh, he had depression, anxiety, and some other diagnostic labels but he tested positive for several pathogens. And he said, well, I ran this by my psychiatrist. And he said, pathogens don't have any effect on the brain. I said, just go back to them and say microglial cells. I mean, that's all you got to say, right? I mean, because when those inflammatory white blood cells are turned on the central nervous system, it's going to create brain fog, memory issues, insomnia in the short term, long-term neurodegeneration, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, et cetera. Yeah, it's it is fascinating, isn't it? How little our conventional uh, medical doctors actually understand about health. It's unfortunate. It's getting better because of the functional medicine training and the nutrition training that more doctors are getting. Depends which school you go to specifically, um, and then are you opting for these additional trainings and certifications uh, for your own continuing right. education, which more doctors are. But unfortunately. Most doctors today, most conventionally trained doctors, don't know anything about health. I mean, they understood, they, they, they memorized every, you know, physiological, biological function of the cells, of the, the, the mitochondria, of all the aspects of, you know, how our cells work and all of that. And yet they're not trained in actually how to treat things with diet and nutrition and lifestyle. They just, unfortunately, they're just not trained in that. It's not their fault. They're not bad people. You know, um, right. it's just, they don't know how to do it. Now there are a lot of doctors who are my friends and colleagues and in my mastermind group and who I work with every day who did step outside the conventional training and get trained in functional medicine. And just like yourself has been, pursuing natural health and holistic health for many, many years. And they're treating patients successfully with diet and lifestyle and nutrition and seeing incredible results without destroying the immune system and gut health, you know, with harmful drugs and treatments. And so even though those might have a place in time, depending on what right. circumstance you have or what, you know, health issue you have, the reality is there's so much we can do to improve our health and vitality just by learning how to eat more real whole foods, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables, uh, sleep eight to nine hours a night, uh, do sauna a couple days a week, um, you know, do hard things, go to the gym or work out or run or cycle or swim, you know, do some strength training and some cardiovascular training uh, five or yes. six days a week, even for 30 minutes or an hour. I mean, it's pretty, pretty simple. Obviously, if you're dealing with a chronic health condition, that's where it gets more complex and you got to really dig deep and dive in and figure out, especially when, you know, bacteria, yeast, toxins, 
you know, things have really uh, become prolific throughout the body. We know that heavy metals actually get stored in the adipose tissues. And so, you know, there are certain things we have to do to actually release those heavy metals from the adipose tissues. But we, we know sauna really helps with that, actually. Um, there are binders you can take. There's activated charcoal. Um, you know, there's chlorella. There are a lot of things you can mm -hmm. take that will actually help bind to heavy metals and bind to toxins and chemicals and pull them out of your body. But we got to stop putting the, the gasoline in first, right? We've got to stop putting the gasoline in that's, that's feeding the fire. And that means you got to stop putting in the processed sugar. You got to stop putting in the junk food. You got to stop putting in the stress and the anxiety and the fear because that inhibits our immune system and inhibits our gut function. In fact, 70% of our immune system is said to be in our gut, in our small intestines, right? So these are things that, that are really important and people are hearing more and more about it. The question for people tuning in is like, are you actually doing these things? Are you actually making the changes you need? Uh, are you actually focusing on improving your health uh, by improving your diet, nutrition, and lifestyle? And if not, why not? And let's figure out how to help you get there so that you can experience better health and more vitality. But I want to ask you about um, athletes specifically on, on recovery because you said you'd rather take a moderately trained athlete who's well recovered over a you know, highly or extreme trained athlete who's, who's under recovered or poorly recovered, which makes sense. The, I guess I, you know, I, I would counter that with if you had a very highly trained or extremely trained athlete. Um, you might be able to get them better results if you can get them recovering better, right? Um, but a moderately trained athlete who's recovering well, obviously you can make bigger gains faster, I would imagine, than somebody who's already, you know, at the 97, 99 percentile going 1% right. is very, very little gains versus someone who's at 60%. It's a lot easier to go up to 65, 70, 75, right? right? But I guess the bigger question is how, how does someone really know that they're recovered properly to really um, hit the high intensity again, especially someone who is really well adapted, someone who's really well trained, somebody who has been training, you know, two sessions a day, two and a half hours per session for months and years on end, right? Versus someone who's brand new versus someone who's in the middle. Like, what are ways you work with athletes to help them determine how well they're actually recovered? Yeah, so some of the wearables like Aura Ring, um, and there are others, but the HRV, heart rate variability score, you know, it's a good indirect measure, I guess you would um, label it, of sympathetic versus parasympathetic tone. And there's a great strength coach in the NFL, I'm not sure which team he's with now, but his name's Buddy Morris, and he's been tracking HRV for over 20-something years. And he said, you know, the best athletes on the planet during competition, they go into a sympathetic state, but immediately when it stops, they go back into parasympathetic. And so things like that, but also looking at the bigger picture, like you mentioned some injuries, you know, some nagging orthopedic musculoskeletal type injuries. And so if, if you're getting those, if we know you're doing the right things for your body structurally, like let's say you're balancing your horizontal rows with your horizontal pressing, um, but you're still developing shoulder pain, or just, you know, injury after injury in different areas of the body, and we can't really find a mechanical reason for it, then I think we have to look at your biochemistry and your physiology, um, even a four-point cortisol test. You know, 
it gets into semantics, right? So the adrenals don't just become fatigued, but if someone has really high cortisol or really low cortisol, we do need to address that um, with herbs, adaptogens, things of that nature, or even neurotransmitter support um, to help. Uh, and one way I've helped a lot of athletes is by um, stimulating and balancing their neurotransmitters. So acetylcholine has to cross the postsynaptic junction for any muscular contraction to occur. So if I'm contracting my biceps without acetylcholine, that's not possible. And it could be a squat, a deadlift, a vertical jump, horizontal broad jump. Um, none of that's possible without acetylcholine. So if we can increase the neural drive to a muscle or muscle groups involved in a movement, then you'll get better motor unit recruitment, which is to say more muscle fibers and the neurons connected to those muscle fibers. And so uh, all those things play a role. And uh, in terms of nutrition with athletes, you know, we probably heard about the Lakers, I think three or four years ago, a lot of them were following a paleo type template. Um, I don't think you necessarily have to go low carb. I think, you know, some whole, you and I were talking about this when I interviewed you about, you know, talk when people say, oh, well, avoid fruit, but then they're talking about juicing, but the juicing actually spikes insulin. Whereas when you have some fiber with it, like in the natural fruit, it, it's going to blunt that insulin spike. And so we want to control inflammation. Um, we know that, you know, that plays a major role. And so circadian rhythms, and, you know, sometimes it's difficult because guys want to go out after the game, go to a club, stay out until one in the morning. But, you know, I just try to convince them this way. Okay. You know, you have seven or eight years to make your career in this profession. So let's not do anything to jeopardize that, right? Like you can go to the club for 10 years for all I care when you're done with that. But right now, let's focus on the here and now. And I think one, I try to do things in the beginning that are going to make them start feeling better immediately. So something simple, it sounds silly to us, but a blue light block or a sleep mask at night, you know, and they get so much better sleep. They have more energy, they're more present for their relationships and their interactions with other human beings. And I think simple, then they're like, oh, okay, well, there's something to this. And then they buy into more of what you're saying. And then they just start layering in more and more. Um, I interviewed on my show, um, Doug Grant. He was the first nutritionist in the NBA 20 something, maybe 30 years ago. 82, and, 80, uh, 80, 10, 80, 10, 10, Doug Graham. 80, 10, 10, what? You're talking about Doug Graham with the 80, 10, 10 diet. Oh, Grant, G-R-A-N-T. Oh, Grant. Okay. Doug Grant. So no, not, not yeah. 80, 10, 10. Okay. Yeah, and so Doug Grant, uh, he knew the owner of this particular NBA team, and when he came on board, the orthopedic surgeon said, I know the owner likes you, but I don't believe in this stuff. So, and, and at that time, what Doug told me is that he couldn't make any recommendations that the entire medical team didn't agree with. And I'm like, whoa, well, that's going to be virtually everything I recommend <laughs> they're going to go against. And he said, he was telling me some anecdotal stories. He said, you know, the stuff you see athletes do on camera, that's not the stuff that's benefiting them. That's because of, you know, the paid sponsorships. He said that they had an in-house um, electrolyte powder that they created for their athletes that they would use, you know, in the locker room before the game at halftime. He said there was even a situation where one of the major sports drinks companies 
was competing with another sports drinks company for a contract with the team. Long story short, they ended up having to put one product in a differently labeled bottle, all because of the legalities in the contract. And all that is to say that, you know, he he's able to get people better and performing better with, you know, whole food nutrition, enzymes, eating a little bit of raw food, um, getting your mind right, like getting rid of the toxic thoughts, the ants, the automatic negative thoughts. And so uh, a lot of things that athletes can do, they're really simple, but it, to them, it's just so different than what they hear. And that's why I don't think I would ever work for a professional team because, you know, they say all the right things like, oh, we want our players to do the best and have the best, but your hands are kind of tied. And when I was in Charlotte at, at that clinic where we had the hyperbaric oxygen chambers, some of the Carolina Panthers players would come and they would say, oh, you know, please don't take our photo or post about this on social media. Um, because, you know, the team position, the orthopedic surgeon, you know, he has, well, two things to offer them, either surgery or cortisone shots. Right. And, you know, there's a place for surgery, but now a lot of orthopedic surgeons, the good ones, there's always going to be people to operate on, right? So they're trying to keep as many people as possible out of the operating room using regenerative medicine, exosomes, stem cells, PRP, PRF, peptides, et cetera. But, you know, depending on the sport, it's really interesting some of the things that I remember in college, undergrad, seeing some of the, like, milk thistle was on the banned substance list. But I can tell a player that he could go eat McDonald's three times a day, and that was perfectly fine. And, you know, no one thought this through. Like, it's it's pretty silly, and it's really dangerous um, because they buy into it, and, you know, they think, oh, it's to kind of appeal to authority type of argument. Right. But, um, you know, just because someone works in professional sports, I'll just say this, that doesn't mean they're the end-all, be-all, and that they are a guru. I've seen some stuff that would just shock people. Well, here's the problem with, um, you know, the sponsorships that professional athletes have today, in my opinion, is a lot of these athletes are very young, right? I mean, coming straight out of high school or college, I mean, still in their early 20s, none of them know anything about actual health, right? They know how to perform. They have built a body and a brain that, you know, performs like a freaking rocket ship, but they don't know about long-term health. They don't know about chronic health. They don't know the fact that, yeah, you could feed yourself a bunch of shit and garbage and junk food and sugar, you know, while you're twenties, maybe even into your thirties and still perform really well, but eventually it catches up and it catches up to everybody. You know, even that person where you say, Oh, my grandmother smoked her whole life and drank alcohol and, and she lived to 90. Well, what did she die from? Oh, she died from diabetes and cancer and heart disease. And okay, right? Like even in those cases, there's usually something, um, and they're super, super rare. And very often, you know, that person had crazy genetics that just allowed them to smoke and drink their whole life. But the majority of people are going to eat highly processed, sugary foods, junk foods, McDonald's, fast foods, all this stuff. Eventually, it catches up. And these are the the younger athletes that I'm hearing from now who are in their late 20s, early 30s, who are having gut health issues, who are having dysbiosis, who are having autoimmune diseases, who are having brain fog, who are having, you know, hormonal problems, right? And I'm sure you're seeing a lot of these athletes as well, yeah. athletic people. 
yeah, I've been working with mostly people 50 and older for the past decade, you know, who have cancer. Um, but now that I'm, you know, I have a, a, a new company we've launched called Plant Powered Athlete, and we're working with younger athletes, and I'm seeing this a lot more. I'm seeing this need to help younger athletes learn about real nutrition and real health. And what's really interesting, too, and I'm documenting and, and researching, you know, professional athletes who were at the top of their game and then started getting knocked off because of health issues that started coming up and then they're doing then they start doing all these things that we're talking about whole food nutrition more more real plants in their diet you know meditation better sleep all this stuff that actually then their performance not only continues but they are even the greatest in their sport into their late 30s early 40s longer than most people uh have made to sport. and there's not just one example there's multiple examples of men and women from right. every sport that i'm finding so it's really cool mm -hmm. um but the younger generations need to realize this now so you don't have to deal with those chronic health problems that could take you out of your sport you don't have to wait for the diagnosis you don't have to you know have the problems that then oh now you're now you're really having to deal with all this pain and and fatigue and problems that are right. preventing you from achieving your peak performance right so this stuff is more important for people now than ever yes um absolutely but i wanted to, i want to ask you about uh, or I want to mention something you said about HRV. So it's really interesting. I used to wear the whoop band. Um, mm -hmm. I always say it like that. Whoop. I don't know how. <laughs> um, apparently, it's one of the most accurate at tracking HRV. The problem was I never used the data. I looked at the data every day. I thought it was cool. I, I felt good when I was in the green and I got, you know, good sleep. And I just kind of um brushed it away brushed it under the rug whenever it said it was red it was in the red and poorly recovered um and said i had poor sleep or whatever i tried learning from the data um i tried i think the number one thing it did for me was help me just think about sleep at a deeper level and know that just because i'm in bed for nine hours doesn't mean i'm getting nine hours of sleep you know, that was a big eye opener for me, right? A few years back that was like, yeah, I'm getting nine hours of sleep. I'm in bed nine hours. And then it tracks and it's like, you slept six hours. I was like, what? <laughs> How do I only sleep six hours? You know, once you start right. realizing that um, it's, it's eye opening and then you start optimizing for your yeah. sleep. Like you said, you know, completely pitch black in the room, a little bit more right. cool, trying to, you know, avoid blue light at night as much as possible. Don't eat so late. You know, a lot of these things that we can do to optimize our sleep. The problem was I wasn't using the data for my training. Like if it was in the red, I still, I had training to do, you know, it's like, I guess that's the hard part for me. It's like, well, I've got training on my program today. I'm going to hit the gym. I'm going to train no matter what, no matter this says red, green, yellow, it doesn't matter. Right. But I can now see that that mentality might be a problem. <laughs> and, and I'm considering, you know, starting to track HRV again and maybe actually use the data and be like, well, if it's in the red, maybe I just do a really light, easy day today and, right. and, and see how it works. Um, do you have a yes. lot of athletes you work with specifically? Do you have athletes like that are clients of yours? I have um, a handful at the moment. You know, I've had a few NFL, a few NBA, um, and one minor league baseball player or two minor league baseball players 
Um, but what I tell people in terms of, like you said, when your score was in the red, uh, one thing I learned from Paul Check and Charles Poliquin, you know, when you're stressed out, you can go work out, but decrease the number of sets, so the volume. So you keep the weight the same for the most part, and that creates the same metabolic stimulus. And so you're maintaining your strength, but you're not stressing your neuroendocrine immune system as much. So, lower the, so volume, lower the volume and even like in my sport, CrossFit, right? It's, there's a lot of high intensity, right? So right. let's say lower the volume, but also probably lower the, the intensity for, so the, the uh, nervous system can respond. Right. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of Olympic lifts, hand clean, snatches, et cetera. So those are very neurologically demanding um, and you're more likely to get injured, right? When, if you're fatigued and your nervous system is fatigued and you're yep. performing those lifts, that's why you don't go very high. I mean, I'm not an Olympic lifter, but you correct me if I'm wrong. You don't typically go high on those reps, like no more than say five or six, right? Uh, in terms of reps. Yeah. I mean, Olympic lifting training is very, you know, low rep, high weight, right? So we're doing yeah. singles and doubles at... 80%, 85%, 90% of your one rep max. Um, pretty often, you know, you're not really hitting, you're not really going down to like 60, 65% and then you're doing, you know, six, seven, 10, 12 reps. It's definitely the opposite of bodybuilding, right? And it's really about building maximum strength, speed, and power um, for the Olympic lifting portion. Now, do, bring Olympic lifting into CrossFit and now you're training that stimulus different drop the weight 20 30 40 percent and then you are doing high reps at high intensity to get a um uh, not only a neurological and physiological response but a hormonal you know adaptation response right so yeah you're training crossfit you're training everything you're training you know high-end strength speed uh but you're also training endurance you're uh, high intensity output, you're training, you know, every aspect of metabolic functional health. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the CrossFit, one thing I'll say about them is one thing I've seen them do a great job with is being open-minded to, okay, it's more health is about more than just hang cleans or, you know, um, pull-ups or using the gymnastic rings, you know, they're using the breath work and the sauna the cold plunge, um, the nutrition. And, and so they're very, in my experience, at least open to that. And a lot of my colleagues have offices either connected to or inside of CrossFit gyms, you know, and they'll do manual therapy, um, soft tissue work, laser, dry needling, et cetera, on the athletes, because you're dealing with a population that's already one, they're self-starters and two, they have accountability. And so, you know, that's always good things in patients. Um, you know, I had one patient who was, she was extremely compliant and she said, I'm going to, Dr. Jackson, I'm going to refer my husband to you. Will you work with him? I said, absolutely. And the first thing he says on the call is I, I'm not taking any supplements. I'm not changing my diet. I don't have time for either one of those. I said, sir, I'm not trying to be rude, but I don't think I can help you. Like, you know, there's got to be some effort, you know, on your part. Like I'll help you as much as I can, but I mean, you can't give me 30 seconds to take a supplement. I mean, you know, so um, the CrossFit population is, is very, they're very thorough in my experience. Um, I just interviewed, um, I don't know if you saw it. His name is Evan Slaughter. Uh, his Instagram handle is fit to serve one. 
and he has like a hundred and something thousand followers, but he has a lot of paid sponsorships with CrossFit and he started doing comedy videos. So long story short, he was in the military, um, served overseas, had an explosion, received a Purple Heart Award, um, and then got hooked on opiates, went to rehab for that. And, you know, now he's on his journey back to health. But, you know, he his whole philosophy is, okay, everyone is fit to serve at some level. You don't have to wait until you have six-pack abs and, you know, 8% body fat to say, hey, I can help people. Like there are people two to three steps behind you that you can extend the hand and help them. And so he infuses comedy. He has one video, I'll tell you real quick, where um, it's his quote unquote first day at CrossFit and, uh, you know, the chalk um, bowl or whatever. He goes over and then the coach yells at him, hey, Evan, where are you? And he's got chalk all over his lip, like he's been snorting it. <laughs> and so the guy's just hilarious. But, you know, he says the same thing about the CrossFit, the community, sense of community and belongingness. And I mean, you know about this as well as I do, you know, the blue zones, I mean, having a strong sense of social connection. Yeah. I mean, now, I mean, I don't even know my neighbors that live on this side. I never see them, literally never seen them. Um, I think I said hi to one of them one time. Um, and so like, we need to bring back, uh, you know, having a sense of community where, you know, several hundred years ago, if you were sick, then, you know, everyone rallied around you knowing that when they were sick or if they had an issue that you would return the favor. And there's a lot to be said for that. You know, we're social beings and it activates, we talked about the vagus nerve. It activates that ventral vagal pathway, which is the social engagement system. So just for the listeners sake, um, when we say vagal tone, we're referring to the vagus nerve, but there's technically two parts to it. The dorsal part so you've heard of dorsal fins, dorsal means back, essentially. And that um, is the freeze state. So fight, flight, freeze. The ventral vagal system is the anti-inflammatory pathway and the social engagement system. So the more people are in a fight or flight, sympathetic dominant state, the more inflamed they will be. And so that's another method through which stress damages our health. Yeah, and it downregulates the immune system as well, and you need your immune system to fight off these infections that we were talking about earlier, right? I do have to agree. I, I think CrossFit, one of the reasons they have become so successful and exploded to thousands of gyms all around the world and millions and millions of people doing CrossFit every single day is exactly that, is the community aspect. It's, it's also you learn new things. You don't get bored. There's always something to, to get better at. You got coaching, right? But it's before and after you're talking, you're sharing stories, you're hanging out, you're, you're sharing ideas, you, you build a community, you build real, you, you create real friendships. I mean, our gym here in Jacksonville, you know, on the weekends during the, you know, spring and fall, we'll go out to the beach and we'll have anywhere from 10 to 30 people come from the gym and come and play volleyball, you know, and you know, there's, there's parties that, uh, we go to and, and different social events and we do big workouts that honor, you know, fallen uh, heroes uh, who have died, you know, in combat and we'll do a big workout and in, in honor of them. And you have, you know, a hundred people at the, from two or three gyms come together. So the community wow. sense is so, so valuable and so important. People think of it as just like, yeah, it's nice. But when you really look at the science behind it, we know that when you have a strong community of people who support each other, 
um, and you have real friendships, it, as you said, it's not only uh, activating our vagal tone, our vagal nerve, which upregulates our immune system and reduces inflammation. So, you know, there's that nice little physiological benefit from it. But you are happier and happier people live longer, right? And happier people uh, enjoy life more. And so having that sense of community. You know, I go into LA Fitness once in a while because I like some of their machines to use for accessory work and stuff. And it's like everybody's on their phone, uh, you know, earphones in and nobody says anything to each other or looks at each other or anything. It's just like it's like a bunch of robots in the gym. And that's how most gyms are. And I think, you know, a lot of people don't want to go to the gym because they don't like that and they can't find the motivation to go there and do bicep curls in front of the mirror because they don't really care enough about how they look to drive them yeah. to be committed every day. And the ones who do care enough about how they look, you know, they're there two or three hours doing the, the bodybuilding and taking, you know, Instagram videos of their asses that have grown, you know, five extra inches because they get a million likes when you look at, you know, and they post it. So right. it's like, yeah, there's benefits to that because it's creating, you know, a sense of physical health. But then uh, you also have, uh, unfortunately, people who are truly being, uh, negatively affected by body dysmorphia, especially young people. Uh, Sophia Ellis, uh, who's a international champion bodybuilder, um, not bodybuilder, international champion powerlifter. She actually deadlifted recently more than I just recently deadlifted. I just uh, wow. I just finally hit a 500 pound deadlift wow. uh, a couple of weeks ago, and and then I'm researching her, and she weighs you know. 50 pounds less than me, 40 pounds less than me. And she just deadlifted 500 and like 40 pounds, uh, 535 wow. pounds, something like that. You know, she's, she's got, you know, somewhere between 14 and 20 records. And, but she struggled immensely with body dysmorphia and uh, bulimia and anorexia to the point where she was down to 77 pounds. Um, wow. And a lot of that is childhood trauma and also, you know, this is why my children, 13 and eight, will not have social media until they're at least 18. And they both know that because I think social media is totally destroying young kids' brains. Um, and as a parent, yeah. I can see that it, it's destroying their self-image. It's destroying, you know, uh, it's making them think they have to look a certain way. Otherwise, they're not going to be loved and they're not going to be accepted by society. And it's all bullshit. And it's totally dysfunctional. And it's messing up these kids' is, uh, lives and their brains, and you can see it by, by dysmorphia, anorexia, bulimia, and it, depression, anxiety, suicide with uh, youth. It is so sad what's going on. And a lot of it, I think, is better parenting and don't give your kids social media. I mean, <laughs> I really, yeah. it's not only that simple, but I think those two things can make a massive impact and difference in the health of our youth. Um, yeah, I see a lot of people who basically have the phone or the tablet or iPad babysitting their child, you know? Uh, and I mean, the blood brain barrier is not fully formed until around four and a half years of age. But back to your point about the gyms, you know, half the time I'll hear someone next to me at the free weights or on cable stack and they're talking. I'm like, Oh, did you need a spot? I'm like, no, I wasn't talking to you. <laughs> Okay. How was I supposed to know? Like, you know, they got an earpiece in, like you can't get off that thing for like two minutes. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and yeah. not only that, but it, you know, it's straight into the ear, like, you know, 20 minutes, like imaging studies show 
changes within 20 minutes of cell phone use. And, you know, they have it in for one, two, three hours. hundred percent. Yeah. And so back to community, like, you know, I think you can create a community at, at a regular gym. That's not CrossFit. I mean, I, like I said, I was deadlifting at LA fitness a few weeks back and I had one guy say something to me and another guy say something. And I stopped and actually walked up to him and, and had a conversation. It wasn't like, Oh, thank you. Or whatever. It was like, I actually stopped what I was doing in the middle of a lift, which, which is not really ideal. Um, and start talking and have, and then I ended up having conversation, you know, multiple times, uh, with one of the guys, you know, over the next hour, every time I saw him somewhere else, we'd talk for a few more minutes, a few more minutes, a few more minutes. Like you can definitely create that sense of community and connection at any gym if you're open to it and you actually realize the value and importance of it. Um, and yeah, some people go to the gym just to socialize and, and then don't get a good workout in. And some people go to the, the workout, right. the gym, because they don't want to socialize with anybody because their whole work day is socializing. So, so I understand both sides right. of that too, but I think CrossFit does a really good balance of that. Um, Absolutely. And, uh, anyway, I, I, I am just a huge, big, you know, big, big fan and proponent of CrossFit, but you also have to be mindful. There's a lot of things that you're, if you've never done before, like Olympic lifting, like gymnastics, you know, they require tremendous amount of flexibility and mobility. And if you're like me and you try to go heavy too quickly, you can get injured and then people blame CrossFit. Oh, it's CrossFit's fault. It's the injury is really high. Actually, the injury rate in CrossFit is lower than most sports that people play. And they've done studies on this. But right. when someone goes and then they get injured and then they blame CrossFit and they tell all their friends it's because of CrossFit, it's, it's really not. It's just you either didn't have good coaching, good enough coaching, or you weren't aware enough the importance of taking it, going light and gaining mobility and flexibility over an extended period of time before you actually lift heavy, you know, and that can take months and years. In fact, um, yeah, absolutely. I made those, mis I made those mistakes <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, and injured myself a lot because I had terrible mobility. I had no flexibility. Um, but that's the thing too. Like it doesn't even necessarily in my experience. I mean, I'm not a CrossFitter, but from what I've seen, because there's a CrossFit inside of my gym. Um, and, you know, it doesn't have to be the certified CrossFit coach. Like it can be, I don't know if you're certified CrossFit, but yeah. if you see someone else struggling with thoracic mobility, then like you could show them, you know, some techniques. Like I like to have people lay on their side with their top hip flexed above 90 degrees then reach back and over, you know, to open up thoracic extension and rotation. And I mean, the orthopedic surgeon is never going to tell you this, but if I take an x-ray of you sitting with good posture like this, you're going to have a good space, subacromial space. I can have you go into kyphosis, take the same x-ray, and it's going to be like, oh, the rotator cuff tendon, it's impinged upon, I got to do surgery. Right, right. And if that's all the doctor has in their toolkit is is a scalpel, then, you know, every, every nail they, if their only tool is a hammer, every thing they see is a yeah. nail. Right. And that's unfortunate. Absolutely. I mean, I went to, yeah. I went cause I'm dealing with some bicep tendinopathy and um, I went to the uh, ortho to have him review an uh, MRI that I had previously because wanted to get his input on it. And he basically was like, yeah, th this is, you know, tendinopathy might be tendinosis might've been chronic from again and again and again, which is more likely. 
showed it to me and because I really thought I was concerned it was labrum and, and that I had a bad labrum tear. And when I got the MRI, because I basically had my chiropractor prescribe it to me, I went and got it and then they gave it to me. And it just, all I got was a report. And the report sounded really, really bad. It was like, uh, you know, this tear, that tear, um, labrum tear was uh, bursitis, tendonitis, like a whole bunch of stuff. I was like, this sounds horrible, right? And then when I actually went to the, uh, an ortho and had him pull it up and look at it and read it. It was like, Oh, it actually isn't bad at all. There's like some 10% fraying in the right. labrum, which really isn't bad. That's pretty standard for most people, you know, especially an athlete. There's, you know, definitely a tendonitis or tendinopathy and a bicep tendon, you know, these other things, the other ones with the rotator cuff stuff I had already healed um, right. in, in the infraspinatus and supraspinatus. So what was really left was the, the inflammation in the, in the tendon. And even though he's like, yeah, there's not really much we can do. You just, you know, probably do some physical therapy, blah, blah, blah. Then he went into getting really excited about the idea of surgery. Even after he told me that I didn't need surgery, <laughs> it was like, all of a sudden his eyes lit up and he's like, but you know, some people, if it gets really bad, what they do is uh, we'll actually cut the tendon off and then reattach it up here and da, da 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 and he's like getting excited and he's like yeah da, and you could do this and that and that and i'm like i'm sitting here going he just went from telling me i don't need any surgery it's fine it'll heal to like now he's excited about surgery and cutting my tendon off and reattaching it somewhere else and i'm just like i can see how how the brain works you know it's like yeah that's the passion is is the surgery that's what yeah. they love to do and i could see somebody else in that position who wasn't me who's like very much into natural health, holistic health, heal everything naturally. You know, surgery is a very, 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 very last option ever possible um, in my mind. And someone else who's there was like, you know what? That's actually sounding pretty good. You know, that's actually sounds, oh, it, it, it might make it better. I won't have pain anymore. You know what? Let me think about that. And it's like, you don't need right. that. And actually the complications right. that come from that could make things worse for the rest of your life. You know, it's crazy. Absolutely. There's an orthopedic surgeon I follow on Instagram and he said, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, am I, cause he does a lot of regenerative medicine. Now he'll say, patients ask, am I a candidate for stem cells or exosomes? He's like, the better question is, are you a candidate for a major invasive surgery? And, you know, there's really no such thing as a minimally invasive surgery. If you're going under anesthesia, it's invasive. Like your body, I mean, it really only has one way to perceive it. And you know, the anesthesia interfere, I think 36% of all medications, which is a really conservative estimate, are mitotoxic, so they damage the mitochondria. And that's one reason why people have trouble healing from surgery. But then reverse T3 goes up right after surgery, and that's kind of like the brake pedal in your metabolism. And it does your body does that to, you know, help you heal and conserve energy. Um, but yeah, the, there are good orthopedic surgeons out there now who they say, yeah, they're going to be, you know, ACL tears in football, contact sports, and I'll have to operate. But outside of that, you know, I'm getting better results, you know, with regenerative medicine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Tim, this has been awesome talking with you. Dude. I could, I, I mean, I could just keep talking with you for like another hour or two. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I have to uh, go in a few minutes, but you said something. Okay. You said something really early on about testosterone hyperconverting to estrogen. And I want to make sure to get back to that and have you talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Yes. So testosterone naturally in men converts to estradiol. 
you know, and depending on your genetics or epigenetics, uh, that percentage will vary. Uh, but when you're inflamed, what that does is that causes an enzyme called aromatase, which converts testosterone into estrogen or estradiol. It upregulates. In other words, you get more testosterone converting or hyperconverting into estrogen. And why do you think that's that is? important? Why do, why do you think? Why do you think our bodies designed that way? What What is the benefit? Let's talk about what the benefit of that could be. To re if it reduces so, testosterone, should in theory actually make you less, you know, motivated, energetic, you know, aggressive, etc., to go out there and damage your body. That's the first thing that comes to my mind. But um, yeah, I would say estrogen in general. I mean, this is a very big generalization, but estrogen essentially slows the metabolism because as estradiol goes up, so does uh, sex hormone binding globulin and thyroid binding globulin. And so it's basically your body's way of conserving energy. So mm. inflammation is going to activate hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. And so any inflammatory stressor will do that and increase cortisol. So in order, your body thinks, you know, you're dying or you have a severe injury. So in order to slow down and conserve energy, it's going to upregulate estrogen. That's just my hypothesis. Mm. So it's upregulating estrogen because the estrogen is going to conserve energy in your body. So your body has more energy to, to heal the, whatever yeah. the problem is. Yeah. So basically a lot of times people don't heal from whatever ailment because they aren't producing enough ATP or energy currency of the cell. And so if we can, you know, augment the mitochondria through all the things we discussed, sauna, cold plunging, um, exercise, supplementation, whole food nutrition, then that's going to help expedite healing. I tell people, if you want to think of perfect mitochondria, think of like an Olympic sprinter. And if you want to think of someone with really bad mitochondria, think of someone in ICU with end organ failure. So the more systems that are involved in your symptoms, the more likelihood there's a strong mitochondrial component. Right. And so what are the negative effects of, you know, your testosterone converting to too much estrogen? And what does that look like for somebody? If they were to like, oh, I wonder if that's happening to me. What, what are some of the symptoms physiological experiences people might have? So brain fog is a big one. Lack of motivation. Uh, you're going to hold on to body fat and fluid, um, you know, more efficiently. You may gain some body fat. You may notice uh, decreased energy and strength in the gym or even decreased motivation to go to the gym. Uh, and then decreased libido is a big one. But, you know, libido is not just about testosterone. Other hormones play a role, cortisol, thyroid, et cetera. Um, but in terms of men, when you have a hyperconversion of testosterone into estrogen, you could develop extra fat around the chest, the pectoral region. Um, you could develop thyroid issues from indirectly from estradiol raising um, thyroid binding globulin and sex hormone binding globulin. Um, and, you know, the career killer. So brain fog, you know, your cognition isn't at where it was or should be. And so testosterone, you know, it gets kind of just lumped into, oh, build muscle, lose fat and have sex. It does so much more than that. You know, bone density, heart health on um, the heart is one of the most, if not the most mitochondrially dense organs. 
So testosterone influences step one and step two of the Krebs cycle, if I remember correctly. And so that's one reason why cardiac output can be improved upon by exogenous testosterone administration. Cardiac output can be improved upon by, what'd you say, exogenous? Oh, so basically like TRT, is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so right. when you look well, you at the could, testosterone I mean, you numbers. Could do it, you could do it naturally as well too, right? I mean, in, you know, you could basically resolve that, um, that hypertestosterone conversion by what? Yeah. Reducing the, the amount of stress on your body? Oh, yeah. So I wasn't saying that... Um, yeah, sorry. Oh, you're I wasn't just saying, saying uh, administer. Go ahead. Yeah, the TRT. I wasn't saying administer that if someone's hyperconverting testosterone into estradiol. I was just making the point that testosterone it influences the mitochondria in the Krebs cycle, and since the heart is mitochondrially dense, it affects cardiac output. But what you would want to do if someone's hyperconverting testosterone into estradiol, you would want to take anti-inflammatories, depending upon your epigenetics, um, curcumin glutathione, antioxidants, and then find the root causes, because it's usually more than one, of the inflammation and work on whittling those away. And then, you know, there are natural supplements like calcium deglucurate, which will help your body excrete the estrogen. Uh, DIM will help the two to four hydroxy estrone ratios. Um, and then there's a supplement called Myomin, M-Y-O-M-I-N, that works from Dr. Chi, if I remember correctly. It works on several pathways that help you process estrogen. Yeah. And so you're saying it's the chronic inflammation that's actually causing that hyperconversion. So if you yeah, get to the root exactly. cause of the chronic inflammation, then you can, then you can, that, that'll be one of the things that really balances your hormones. I mean, is that true for women as well? I mean, obviously women naturally have less testosterone and more estrogen than men. Right. Uh, is that a similar so, thing that happens to women or is it different? Well, it's slightly different, but what I would say is, you know, there's sort of a hierarchy of how you address hormones. So uh, insulin and glucagon and thyroid and cortisol are kind of the first level and then the sex hormones. So if you just jump to someone taking sex hormones right out of the gate, you may be doing more harm than good, number one. Um, but number two, you have to look at, you know, the whole picture. So gut health, there's an enzyme called beta glucuronidase. And if you have too much of the bad bugs, that enzyme is elevated. And what it does is causes your body to reabsorb estrogen. And so in that case, so a colleague of mine, his, he sent me his wife, who was going to a clinic locally who that's all they do is hormone replacement. But they don't, so they, you can see the limitations to that. You know, you're not even considering gut health. Like, what does that have to do with hormones? I did a microbiome test on her beta glucuronidase, which was probably one of the highest I've ever seen. And so now, you know, she's getting much better results. She'd been working out hard the whole time and eating well. And so all it took was just, you know, looking at things slightly differently. And so, and then, and then it got back into balance once you cleaned up her diet. Yeah. And, and she's been eating healthy all along. We put her on a gut health protocol, um, you know, repopulating the good, feeding the good, and then um, calcium deglucurate and some other supplements based on her epigenetic test. And, you know, that's why, in my opinion, like just down the street here, there's a clinic that says 
you know, I won't say the name of it, but on in addition, it says and hormone replacement therapy. It's almost like someone wrote it in on there. I'm like, you don't want someone who dabbles in hormones. Uh, just like you don't want someone who dabbles in ACL repairs. Um, you know, it's not a hobby. You got to be all in. Yeah. Um, but even, you know, people, if, if you put hormones, exogenous hormones into a body, it's extremely toxic. They're not going to be metabolized appropriately and you're going to get marginal benefits at best. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know that's, that's a whole other conversation. I know a lot of people out there now are experimenting with hormone replacement and, you know, there's, there's pros and cons of course. Right. Um, and, uh, and whatever people want to do with that, I obviously have no problem with it. My, at my stage of my life is, you know, it's like, I want to do everything hundred percent natural, um, without putting, you know, exogenous hormones or, or other things like that into my body. But, um, you know, to, to, to each their own. And, and I do know some people who, especially as they're, they're older, you know, where, uh, they've tried a lot of things and not getting a lot of good results and they have a great doctor that, you know, gives them TRT and, and it improves their life and their quality of life. So, you know, yeah. obviously, like you said, whatever you do, make sure you're working with a real expert who knows what the heck they're doing, um, and has a lot of success with a lot of patients doing it. So, um, anyway, Absolutely. dude, this, this, this has been awesome, Tim. I really, uh, uh, it's been great talking with you, man. And, um, yeah, you too. Appreciate you coming on the podcast and uh, where can people, uh, get in touch with you? Yeah. So healyourbody.org, healyourbody.org is my website. And at the top, there's a tab that says apply to work with Dr. Tim and, uh, that'll get sent to my email and then we can find out if we're a good fit to work together. And take it from there. And on Instagram, it's Dr. Tim Jackson. Awesome. All right, man. Appreciate it. Take care. All right. Thanks, buddy. See ya. ya. Thank you for listening to the Nathan Crane Podcast. Please make sure to subscribe and share this on social media. Then head over to NathanCrane.com for your free ebook. So when we're talking about, you know, what are these underlying causes and conditions of these chronic diseases, cancer, diabetes, heart disease, they all have very similar, if not identical causes. And that's the thing is when we get to the root cause of these diseases, we can not only prevent these diseases from ever happening, but empower our bodies to heal from them. In every one of our cells, we have tens and hundreds of thousands of chemical reactions that are happening every second that are cycling uh, back and forth. It's like sort of a, a yin and yang. And, you know, for me, the soul, soul's purpose is evolution. It doesn't care about comfort. It cares about evolution. Mm. And so I think so long as we are following our soul, then we will evolve. And I think what sometimes blocks us from living our purpose, from manifesting that next level of our expression, is we have not evolved. There is also a time for letting go all the expectations and relax and just breathe and be grateful for what you have achieved.